Well, good morning. And as you turn to uh, John chapter 12, yes, we're going to get back into John now that the holiday season is done and Christmas is over and we've passed through the New Year's. Uh, we're going to go back to John and start working on that again. So John chapter 12, we left off in verse 20. And that's where we're going to pick back up and start moving through. But before we get too far into it, I want to drop some numbers on you. How many verses are there in Scripture? Anyone know that number? Don't feel bad. I had to look it up too. Yeah, there's 31,140, depending on exactly what manuscripts or something you're off. But so roughly about 31,000. How many do we normally cover on a Sunday morning? But 10 to 20, somewhere in there, right? 10 to 20 on a normal Sunday, sometimes a little less, sometimes a little bit more, depending on the section. So in the course of a year, if you only come to church on Sundays and you only open scripture on Sundays, you're going to get roughly anywhere from 520 to 1,040 verses out of 31,000, not even 3%. I want you to think about that, not even 3% of the scripture. It would take us 33 years to cover scripture from start to finish if you only come Sundays. So why as a church are we pushing that we want to see you in Bible studies and life groups where the Bible is being read? Because there's no way that we can adequately understand God's word if we only do it Sunday mornings. If we only come to it Sunday mornings, there's no way we can get it done. There's no way we can sit there and say we understand the God of creation if we only come Sunday mornings. It has to be throughout our lives. We have to dive into scripture. We have to be present with Christ, which is one of the messages we get today. In John chapter 12, verses 20 through 36, see, he says that those who serve him will follow him. They'll be in his presence on a regular basis all the time. They will be in his presence. We'll cover that more here in a few seconds. But I wanted to put those numbers on you because this is why this year we really want to make it a huge uh, a push is to see everybody who comes to church get into a life group or get into a Bible study of some sort where you're engaging the word more than just once a week. And while morning devotions are great, if you don't have that person sitting across you going like, hmm, I don't know if you understand that quite the way scripture means it. You're left to the ocean to toss you left and right however your feelings are feeling for that day. And so there's a danger just doing it all by yourself all the time. You have to mitigate it through. Yes, you need to be in devotion every day. You need to be in prayer every day. You need to be in scripture every day by yourself. But also having those places where you can come into contact and be sharpened by someone else, right? These things that scripture teaches us are so essential. So again, I'm going to sit here and tell you after today's message, I hope that, you know, the hour has come. This moment of judgment upon the earth that we're going to talk about today dwells upon your heart for a moment. That Jesus Christ came to remove the judgment's consequence from us. But that at that moment, judgment had come upon the earth. And we need to sit there and we need to dwell on that. We need to remember that where we are is because God has placed us here, that river of life, here amongst these fellow believers. And that we need to encourage each other, strengthen each other, and follow Christ if we're going to serve Christ. Because it's really hard to follow someone that you don't, or serve someone that you don't follow because you don't know what they're doing. So, Moving into a little bit more on what we're talking about today, if you want to put up the next, uh, go back to the uh, plant. There you go, our, our wonderful wheat plant. If anyone doesn't know what a, where your bread comes from, this is what it starts out in, in the field. Looks like a grain. That one's not quite dry enough yet. It's still a little green, so they haven't harvested it yet. But this is what it looks like. 
And inside scripture today, we're gonna to see where Jesus relates to being the seed that is dropped so that many seeds could go. And I don't know if you, have you ever farmed or planted a garden and then at the end of the year, you just got a little lazy and you didn't go quite clean it up real good and you left like maybe a tomato out there. In our case, we tossed a bunch of old squash on the side of our old barn where we used to live. And uh, that don't do that, I don't recommend it. <laughs> don't just toss it someplace and forget about it. Because here's what happens, when one seed drops, it will germinate, it will become a new plant. And that plant will produce many squash with many, many seeds inside of it. And by the time like three years come down the line, you have an entire uh, hillside that you don't want covered in squash vines because it's not good for the animals that are over there. Uh, covered in squash vines that you have to cut constantly because they're very persistent and they like to grow back. And you get weird little squash because they all cross-pollinate and you don't eat them because you're like, I'm not even sure what that is. But that's what happens. See. When one seed falls, it starts a chain reaction and it's exactly what happened in Jesus' life and that's what we're gonna cover today. So please stand with me as we read from John chapter 12, starting in verse 20, going through verse 36. He says, Now some Greeks were among those who went up to worship at the festival. And so they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and requested him, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus replied to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. The one who loves his life will lose it. And the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant also will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? But that is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said it was thunder. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus responded, this, came, this voice came, not for me, but for you. Not in the judgment of this world, or, excuse me, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And as for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate the kind of death that he was about to die. Then the crowd replied to him, We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Jesus answered, The light will be with you only a little longer. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness doesn't overtake you. And the one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. And while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become children of light. And Jesus said this, then went away and hid from them. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you to hear your word this morning, to be enlightened by it, to understand what it means to be a child of light. 
to serve you and to follow you. What it means that you were the first grain that dropped to the ground and died that we may be produced. Lord God, we come before you. Grow us in the shape that you have us to be. Make us into a plant that produces much around us. That as we fall as a seed to the ground and die, many will come out of it. For Lord, what you started will continue forever until you return. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Please go ahead and have a seat. So many people might argue that this is a seeker-sensitive message because you have some Greeks who are obviously coming to worship at the festival. This is the Passover festival, and, and so they're coming down here, but they're probably, if they're Greek, they're probably converts. They weren't Jewish, they weren't Hebrew in nature, and so they were probably converted, but they're seeking out Jesus. They've heard of who he is, they've maybe heard the miracles, and they want to be in his presence. They want to see him for themselves. And so a lot of people take this, that this is a message to seekers, but really what it is is, it's a message for all who want to believe in Jesus Christ, what it means to carry that weight of being a believer, what it means to follow through with him. So for you as a believer, this message is as true and as needed in your life as it was for these Greek converts who were coming to talk to him. And so as he moves forward, they go and they find Philip. And, and, and the commentaries kind of talk that, you know, this is probably, they find Philip because he probably has a Greek name. So Philip is not necessarily a Hebrew name. You won't find it in translations in Hebrew all too often. Uh, at all, I don't think. I don't know. I don't read every text out there in Hebrew, so I don't know. But scripturally, you won't find Philip in the Old Testament. It's a very Greek name. And so they probably saw, hey, that's Philip. We know Philip. Maybe they've had contact with Philip before, so they go to find Philip. Now, Philip, being the wise disciple that he is of Jesus Christ, says, I'm going to go talk to Andrew first and get a second opinion about whether we approach Jesus with this request or not. And the two of them kind of have that conversation, and they walk off, and they go, and they talk to Jesus. And Jesus holds an audience with these Greek people. And so that's how we go about it, isn't it? Someone comes and asks us, hey, tell me about your Jesus. And if we're wise, we go off and we find another one of our friends who believes in Jesus and we bring them together and we all sit down and have a conversation and then we go to Jesus and say, hey, hey, help us with this. Help us like, make this understandable. See, this is a lesson that we can learn in this as believers is we do much better when we are in groups or pairs. Not because the numbers are, are outnumbering other people and making them feel intimidated, but because when we have two or more, it strengthens the witness that we bring because now there's someone else agreeing with what we're saying. Now there's another person who has decided to walk in the way and honor Jesus Christ and move forward with it. And so this is kind of a side note, but it's how he starts it in Scripture. This is where we come from. Is, you know, so Philip and Andrew go and find Jesus and they told Jesus what was going on and so Jesus replied to them, and this being the group, is what is generally understood. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. See, here's the thing. When that seed sits on the plant, all it's doing is sucking the plant dry. It's taking all the energy of the plant. In fact, that's the whole purpose of the plant. But the second that seed falls off, once it has enough energy, and it falls off to the ground, it creates a new plant with that many more seeds. And pretty soon you have a side of a hill covered with a whole bunch of plants producing a whole lot of fruit that produces a whole lot of seed that continues the process and keeps on growing and growing and growing. See, 
we like to think that we go out and plant seeds, but in honesty, Jesus Christ was the first one to present and, and, and produce all seeds. Without Jesus Christ, without him falling to the ground and dying, we would be broken. We would be under the power of sin. We would be under the control of Satan and we wouldn't be producing any fruit that was any good. It'd be all broken and ugly and sinful. See, so unless we come back to understanding that Jesus Christ is the first seed, that from him all things extend up and out, that all good comes from Jesus Christ. We're missing the point. We're not, we're not getting that deeper understanding that's there. And so what he's saying here is he's like, hey, listen, I'm the grain and I'm gonna fall to the ground and I'm going to die, but from me, there will be much fruit. And guess what? You're the fruit. 2,000 years later, here we sit confessing Jesus Christ, worshiping God, coming before him as living sacrifices. We're the fruit. We're the seeds that came from 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 the seeds. It's a beautiful picture to understand that we are from the plant of Christ. We are from the base, from the very first seed that was laid. We come from it. And the beauty about it is this. If you take the first seed and you keep on growing from that seed and from the plants that produce from that seed and you keep on going, the original layout, the original understanding of what that seed was is found in the new seeds. So because we're from the seed of Christ, you see a little bit of Christ inside of us. That's the gift of the Holy Spirit going from generation to generation, from believer to believer, being given as a gift. See, we like to sit there and say, oh, we plant seeds, but really Jesus planted all seeds because we all stem from him. And while we're out there sharing the truth and glorifying God, this was the whole purpose of this. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So in other words, for the Son of Man, for God, to be glorified. And he says, but that's going to happen through this death. Because unless I die, nothing else is going to come from it. Why? Because the brokenness of sin will still be in the world. The judgment that God will hold against the world would still be a judgment of wrath upon all of the world. And so there would be no righteousness. There would be no holiness found in the world. We're gonna explain that a little bit more as we go forward, but that's where we sit. See, the one who loves his life will lose it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. See, what he's saying there in that section in verse 25 is, is what we've covered in, in the past too, but what he's reiterating for them is this. If you choose to pursue your will, your life here in the world, you're gonna die, and you're gonna be cast into hell you're gonna lose your life. You will no longer be anything to what you want because Satan will control you. But if you come into God's will, if you come in and you follow God and you, you hate your life, the will that you have inside the situation, and you let God control your life, you let God be the base of your life, at the center of your life, and you let him grow you, then you'll have eternal life because you'll be in his presence. Because that's what he follows it up with. He says right after, he says, the one who loves his life will lose it and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will also be. So these two go hand in hand. There isn't but in there. There isn't a break in it. It's, it's two sentences that kind of come together. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. See, what he's making the argument is, is if I die, and you're a seed from me, 
as I come up and you're a seed in the new plant and then you continue up and on, you will follow me, you'll be where I'm at. So in other words, our servants, our service to God and our following God are essential because it puts us in close contact with him. That's what he's arguing. He's saying, hey, if you're my, if you're my servant, if you do my will, you'll be in my presence. Think about that. How can you serve someone if you're not in their presence? Think of it this way. If, you, if you're an American soldier but you serve Russia, are you an American soldier? No, that's a pretty broad thing but here's the deal. If you, if you serve Christ but aren't with Christ, so in other words, you, you do those good things and this is called social justice theology. We see it all the time in a lot of the churches. In fact, we have several huge components here in our community that are service, our, excuse me, our social justice theology driven. This is where we do good works because that's good enough. We don't necessarily follow God's word. We don't necessarily study God's word. We don't necessarily find ourselves in his presence, but we do good works. That's exactly what he's fighting against right here. This is exactly what he's teaching against right here. He's, what he's saying is, hey, listen, if you're serving in my name, then you will be with me. You'll know who I am and you'll be in my presence. You'll be in my word. You'll be with me in prayer. You'll be with me in actions. See, you will look like the original plant. Why? Because you're a seed from the original plant and you can't do anything but look like the original plant. Question is, is are we that way? Do we find ourselves saying, well, yeah, I, I believe in Jesus. I go and I do good things. And maybe even I do it in, in God's name, right? So Matthew 7, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not heal in your name? What was Jesus' answer? I don't even know you. See, that's where this rub comes together. That's where, where, where we get that little bit of a of NASCAR going on, man. There's, there's some rubbing going on here. Because what happens is, is if, you, if you do things in Jesus' name but you don't have that relationship, you're not in the presence of Christ, he doesn't know who you are because you're not glorifying God in those presence. Why? Because your life doesn't look like the original plant. It doesn't look like the original seed and people will call you out on it. It's called hypocrisy. We hear it all the time in the church, right? This concept that if, if we do one thing but then our lives really don't look that way, like, hey, Sunday mornings I'm like this and I look all nice and clean and good and, 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 and all holy and all, all this pretty little package wrapped up in a bow but then for the rest of the week we're cussing at people and we're doing all sorts of really bad things and we're always for ourselves, not for others and, and putting ourselves ahead of others and, and using those situations and using other people to make gain. That's not walking with Christ. That's not being in his presence in your life. And We run into this issue. So if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will also be. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the reward. This is the, the, the glory that we're given, is that we get to be in the presence of God and that he honors us. I want you to think about what it means to be honored by God. We can translate it as being blessed by God, but that's not the same as being honored. A blessing is something that is given upon you, but to be honored, to be called from the bottom of the row up to the top of the road, to be made something greater than what you are. That's honor. To have your name risen up above, to be placed in the book, that's honor. To know that you have eternal life, that's honor. To know that you're a child of God, that is honor. And he says, those who serve me, those who are with me, those who are in my presence, 
That's who the Father will honor. Now the thing is, is we can only serve Christ if we accept. We're going to get into that here in a second. In fact, we'll move right there so it's not so hard to move through. Verse 27, now my soul is troubled. This is Jesus speaking. Now my soul is troubled. And what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? But that is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. This is his response to the answer. He looks around, he notices that the world's not going to repent. He's been for three years doing ministry and very few people have repented. In fact, next week we're going to talk about how few people actually came to believe in Jesus Christ in his time. We, we hear really huge numbers, but when you're talking about population, it's a very small set of the population. But he looks around and this is his first step of the humiliation of Jesus Christ. Now we see the fullness just before the cross when he's whipped and beaten and called names and spit on and, and all, the, all the bad things that happen at the cross. But this is one of the first steps where people who came to seek him out, who came to know who he was, to be in the presence of Jesus Christ in the flesh, something that most of us, I hope, pray and dream for is to be in his presence. They came to be in his presence, made a request to be in his presence, and then they move forward and they're in his presence. And he looks around upon all these people and this is his response for him. Now my soul is troubled. Not because he's going to the cross. He's willfully moved that direction. He knows what's coming. That's not the question in his heart. What he's troubled about is this. He knows that the world's not going to repent. They're not going to listen to him and glorify God. And so now he's going to have to take the whole wrath of God upon him on the cross. And that's why he says, what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? The hour being a set time, a a, a set amount of space inside our, our timeline that he's walking towards. But he admits, he says, but this is why I've came, is for this hour. I've come to save the world. I've come to make the opportunity for the world to be saved. And so what's his answer? He says, Father, glorify your name in this moment because it's sure as heck not taking place on them right now. They're not glorifying your name, so may the act that I'm walking towards, may it glorify your name. And then we have one of those miracles of all miracles, those things that we all hope for in our lives, those things that we all come together in. He says, then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. You know how many times I've prayed, God, just speak to me in a way I can hear you? Meaning this, I want to hear an audible voice. Yes, you're doing the right thing. Yes, you're leading in a good way. Yes, you're doing this. I want to hear that all the time. I'm sure you guys do too. And here they hear this. Here, Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name through this action, through all this that's going on, this hour I'm walking towards, this this fact that I have to fall and die. And they hear an answer from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And what's the crowd do? The crowd standing there heard it and said it was thunder. Others said an angel has spoken to him. I want you to think about that. Like, if you're a non-believer, you're, God's words don't make sense. And so maybe that's thunder. And so we know we have non-believers listening to this crowd, right? We have Greek people that are there. They're, they're, they're identified as being Greek. A lot of people think they were probably Jewish 
converts who are coming there because of the festival. Some think it might have just been Greek people who wanted to come party. Nothing wrong with going to a good party. And I can tell you, Jerusalem during Passover and the week leading up to it was quite a party. There were people all over. You have all the, all the feasts going on. So maybe they were just Greek people who didn't even believe in, in God of the, of the Hebrews. And they were just there for a party, but they heard about Jesus and wanted to kind of see him, right? We know that the Greeks were kind of always questioning things anyways, so maybe that was just, they wanted to hear from a, a great teacher like Plato or Socrates or Aristotle or any of their previous, you know, someone who they attributed to being very wise. But so whatever, we know that there were some who didn't believe, and so maybe that was just thunder to there. They heard this big rumbling, because why? Because if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, if you don't believe in God, it's said in Scripture that it's foolishness to you. And so maybe they just heard this and they, oh, that's thunder. But then others actually heard what was said because they attributed it to a person, an angel, an entity, speaking. An angel has spoken to him. Instead of just going, he prayed to the father and maybe the father answered him. Wouldn't that be the natural thing if like my kid came into my, into my house and you were sitting there and he's, he says, hey, I would like to do this and I answered him or I would like to see this and I answered him. Would you attribute it to an angel? No, because he's speaking to me. If you heard my voice answer it, whether I was in the room or not, you would sit there and say, oh, that's his father. That's God. But here, they refuse to accept that this is God. They want to attribute it to an angel. All too often we do that in our lives. We hear God speaking to us through scripture. He tells us that we need to do something in a right way or in a, in a, in a prescribed way. And, and we sit there and say, well, maybe that's really not God talking to us. Maybe it's something else going on in our lives. And I did it for six months before I went to seminary when I was looking at going to the military for a chaplaincy. I argued with God for six months and every time he'd plop stuff down, I'd be like, oh, I don't think that's God. I think that's Satan tempting me to do this, that, or next thing. No, man, it was God talking to me. It was God trying to get me to understand what his, his will in my life was. But all too often, we will make excuse after excuse and we will name what God is talking to us to other will attribute it to other things. They attribute it to a, a good thing, an angel, right? There's nothing wrong with angels speaking. We see that in scripture all the time. Mary and Joseph spoke to him. You know, I mean, it's not a bad thing to have an angel come speak to you, but all too often when we hear God's direct word, we push it aside and say, well, it's really not God, so we can kind of maybe ignore it a little bit. We can push it aside. It's really not that important. It just came from this other thing over here. And that's exactly what just happened here. So instead of like hearing him pray it and hearing a direct answer, which is what most of us hope and pray for in our lives, just give us a direct answer, God, happens, we'd probably be like them too. It's like, that wasn't really God speaking. Why? Because it'd freak us out. But anyways, we move on. And Jesus' response to this is like, hey, this voice came not for me, but for you. This wasn't just for my reassurance. I know that God's being glorified in all this. I know what God's will is in this. I know what we as, as a trinity are doing. I know what we as, as, as the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are working in this. I'm not confused by this. This wasn't for me. This is for you so that you'd believe that I am who I have professed that I am. And he says in verse 31, now is the judgment on this world. See, because you didn't believe in God, because you don't glorify God, judgment's coming. That should have freaked everybody out because the wrath of God had brought the floods. It had brought the destruction of cities. It had brought the destruction of people up to this point. God was known as a God of wrath. A God who would step in and destroy what he was unhappy with. He'd wipe it out. And while he had made promises, I guarantee you that's a difficult place to sit. 
His promise never to flood the world. To never visit to Nineveh when they repent, he removes the wrath because they repent. But here the world's not repenting, it's not even believing. And so Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And as for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he gives us salvation. Packages is right there. He, he explains how he's going to die so that everybody's going to understand. See, to be lifted up from the earth, think about when you're pinned to a cross and they lift you up from the earth, now you're suspended between earth and heaven on this cross. And so he's giving them the exact understanding of how he's going to die. He's going to be lifted up. But in that, the ruler of this world, Satan, is going to be defeated. And the wrath of God is going to fall upon the cross and he's going to take all of it upon himself. For if I am lifted from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And so the, the knowledge of the God of wrath that had always been there, now we see being substituted for a God of love who is willing to take upon himself and draw all people to him on the cross. The wrath that you deserve came upon Jesus Christ. The wrath that all the world deserves came upon Christ on the cross. And so now, because he is who he is, he draws people to him because of the fact that he is the God of salvation. We are drawn towards him. He said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. In verse 34, it says, Then the crowd replied to him, We have heard that from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So here, this isn't a, a, a question in general. Like, explain this. This is a scoffing question. This is one of those ridiculing questions that we have in Scripture that the Pharisees like to practice so much. This isn't the Pharisees, this is just a general population. They're saying like, hey, we know that the Messiah is supposed to reign forever, right? Because they're looking for someone to come and conquer Rome. They're looking for someone to come and be this, this manly king who sits upon the throne and rules all things and, and makes it really good for Israel. That's what they were looking for. That's why they missed who Jesus was. That's why they didn't understand him and the Messiah. But he's coming to fight a battle that none of us can fight and that's against sin, against Satan, and against all the wrath of God upon all that sin. He's coming to be victorious in a way that no human can possibly be. And so while he's walked a human life up this place, he's, he's made the assertion and now he's showing the power that his divinity has with it. And so while he's flesh and divine together, this duality of who Jesus Christ is, we start seeing the power of that because now he can sit there and say, listen, because of what I'm about to do, Satan's going to fall from this world and no longer rule it. And you will no longer be subjugated to his will but now be open to be in God's will. And so they question him, scoffingly or in ridicule. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? And Jesus' answer says, the light will be with you for only a little longer. Walk while you have the light so that darkness doesn't overtake you. He's bringing the end of this section back into the beginning where he says, hey, those who serve me will follow me. Be in my presence. Be in the light. Let me guide you. Let me show you the path that you're to walk. Let me show you who you're to be. So that what? The darkness, sin doesn't overtake you. See, when you're in the presence 
of God, when you're in the presence of Jesus Christ and you're walking constantly with Christ, sin has a really hard time getting a foothold. Yes, you will still sin occasionally. You'll still do boneheaded things and you'll still do things that are against God's will occasionally. It happens. None of us are perfect. But when you strive to walk in Jesus' presence all the time, it's really hard for sin to grab hold and hold on because you're in the presence of perfection. You're in the presence of glory. You're in the presence of righteousness and in the presence of love. So Jesus tells them, I'm only going to be here a little bit longer. You have a privilege that no one else is ever going to have to literally walk in the presence of the light. Take hold of it and, and, and respect it. Make it your passion. Fellow follower of Jesus Christ, I ask you, is that your passion in life? To walk fully in Christ every day of your life, to be in his presence no matter what you're doing, to walk with him, to be in his presence. See, he warns us, he says in the second part of uh, 35 there, the one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. See, if you don't walk in the light, you stumble, you hit yourself. We've talked about that before, right? Like nobody likes to walk through their house in the dark. Even if, no matter how good you think you know it, there's always that table that catches that little toe. And how bad does that hurt? It's excruciatingly painful, is it not? Like, it's amazing how bad a little toe being clipped on a table or on a foot of a a piece of furniture hurts. But that's the thing with sin. It's if we walk in the darkness and we keep on stubbing our toes on sin, we're living a life in pain. But if we walk in the light, we can see and we can avoid those things. We can avoid those sinful behaviors. We can avoid those things that put us in opposition to God's will and, and move us away from God. We can walk in a way that keeps us in the presence of Jesus Christ. And the, and the difficult thing is, is we don't have Jesus Christ in the flesh before us like they did. When he makes this comment to walk in the light, to, to be in the presence, that was a real flesh and blood human being that they were being addressed by. With the full divinity of God and all the wisdom and knowledge of God all tucked in right there, right? I mean, this beautiful package. And they got to walk in the presence. I mean, I couldn't imagine what it'd be like to be a disciple. It had to be extremely hard because you're constantly being taught lessons, right? That'd be a really difficult thing. But to know that the lessons you're being taught are sharpening you and making you stronger and, and, and creating something inside of you that nothing else can create would have been amazing. In fact, I believe it was so amazing that it sprawled these guys on to be the apostles. And none of them met a good end but they were willing to walk it because of those three years that they walked in the light was enough to sustain them for the rest of the hardships that they walked in. The question is, is the only way we can walk in the light now is by dumping ourselves into scripture. To understand who God is, being in the fellowship and being with other believers who pursue God's word wholly and completely to walk in his presence through scripture. See, when we do that, when we come together, when we combine those things, then we can walk in a strong and good way knowing that the light is with us. Because what does Jesus say? He says, I will send another to help you. And in the process of that, you receive the Holy Spirit, right, in the belief of Jesus Christ. When the Holy Spirit binds us together to the point where Jesus says, anywhere that two or more of you come together, there I'll be. This is a spiritual aspect. This isn't a physical aspect. 
He knew that just because two believers came together, he wasn't physically gonna be sitting there in the essence of like my body sitting here. What he did know is that when two or more believers came together, he would be spiritually, and in that presence, the Holy Spirit would be physically in that body of believers. Why do we promote Bible studies this year? Because I want you to get to this point. I want you to get to the point where you're walking in the light every day, serving God and being in his presence so that he can strengthen you and make you who he wills you to be so that you may be honored by God, the Father. See, that's the best thing I can pray for you is that you get to the place where God, the Father, is honoring you, not your fellow humans, not any of us, just God himself sitting alongside of you and honoring you, being in the presence and being called a child of light. See, this was such an important message that Jesus literally ended the message and then went and hid away from everyone. It says, Jesus said this, then he went away and hid from them. Then say he just walked away. He went and hid from them so that they couldn't talk to him anymore, that they couldn't question. See, he says the hour has come. We're prepping ourselves to, excuse me. We're prepping, <laughs> we're prepping ourselves moving into Easter for the season to, to recognize and remember the cross and all those things. But this is where it starts. He says the hour has come. Because you, didn't, you heard God's voice and you either didn't understand it or you refused to accept it as God the Father's voice, judgment is coming upon the world. He said, it's done. What needs to happen needs to happen, and I don't need to talk about it anymore. Now for us, luckily, he talks an awful lot in the next several chapters that we're going to be able to just pull a huge amount of information from and, and just understand Jesus and, and his, his works and, and, and his existence here on earth. But right here, he's saying, it's done. The hour's come. There's no changing. See, it's sort of like Nineveh. Jonah goes and he refuses to go for a while, but he finally gets convinced by God's will to, to go after being swallowed by a whale and all, all sorts of other bad or fish, depending on which translation you're reading, and moves up and over. And, and what we find ourselves in is, is Jonah finally breaks down and goes and he calls Nineveh to repentance. Even though he wants to see Nineveh destroyed, he calls them to repentance. But in Nineveh, there's a difference. Everybody repents. The city as a whole repents. And God turns and doesn't destroy it like he has promised to do if, if they didn't repent. Jesus came for three years and told us to glorify God. Put him first in your life. Repent of the sin in your life. Turn from your wickedness. All the commands that he's given us to place ourselves before God and be in the presence of God and honor God in all things that we do. And humanity refused time and time again to do so with spite and ridicule on their tongues. And so the time has now come. And the wrath of God must come upon the earth. Why? Because God is at a point where it's over. You've had your chance. But for us, we have the blessing of Jesus Christ. So to fully understand what it means that he's the first seed, if it wasn't for Jesus Christ going to the cross, none of us would be able to sit here and confess our faith in God. None of us could sit here and glorify God because we'd be still broken, because we'd be full of sin and ugliness. All those things we talked about last week, about you know, what we should be really concerned about in our New Year's resolutions as we move forward in this new year, of the envy and the ugliness that comes out of us 
because of Jesus Christ being the first seed and now that we have that inside of us and we're all growing a little bit from that and we all have a little bit of that in us as believers, we are moving away from that brokenness. We are no longer trapped under the wrath of God but now have the salvation of Jesus Christ upon us. And while that may seem like a seeker-sensitive message because it's the message of leaving the past life, coming to Christ and being made anew, here's the deal, fellow believers. Are we living a life that honors that message in a true and real way? Or are we serving in a way that God won't even recognize us, that Jesus himself won't even recognize us? Do we walk in Jesus Christ every day? Are we in his presence throughout our lives? Or are we falling away? That's the question I leave you today as we move forward. Do you know scripture? Is 52 Sundays, 1,100 verses roughly enough? Is 3% enough to get you into a place where you feel you're in the presence of God? In the presence of Jesus Christ? Walking in the light, is that enough for you? And while I love doing what I do, I'm gonna minimize what I do. Because here's the truth, if this is all you're getting, it's not enough. It's not enough for you to just be here Sunday mornings. You need to be seeking Jesus every day. You need to be in his presence every day. If we just break down the numbers, even every day if you study 20 verses, it'll still take you five years to get through the word of God. I did the math. It's 20 verses a day. Five years. And that's dedicating some serious time. And that's not just reading. I mean, you need to dive into it. That's not what he's saying. Like when you're in the presence of someone, you get to know that person, do you not? And so it's not just a superficial, it's not like, hey, I know that person that quick trip because I'm in their presence for five seconds every day when I check out. That's not what he's talking about. When he says being in the presence, he means like the disciples living and walking amongst him day in and day out, listening and being taught and hearing and receiving the message that he has to give. That's being in the presence of someone. To truly get to know them and understand them and to have their character change and shape your character. See, that's what happens when you're in the presence of someone. And so as we close up today, as we move forward, the question is, is have you Acknowledge that the hour has come. And that from this point forward, we're to walk with him in his presence as we serve him, as we come alongside of him. Why? Because he is the light. He is what moves us out of the darkness and allows us to move through in a way that we know where we stand, where we are, instead of being lost and confused. That's my hope, that's my prayer. And that's the challenge that each and every one of us has to pick up. For in it, we receive the honor from God through Jesus Christ. What more can we ask for? Amen.